0: that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking of the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible believing church. Jesus is preparing the church Um, That's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church and we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump
1: right in with us
0: and we're glad you're here.
1: Well, hey, hey, welcome back. Welcome back. Um, It's good to be back with you this morning. I uh, hope you had an amazing, amazing Thanksgiving week. Um, if, if you were here last week, we had this really cool uh, Friendsgiving together where, yeah, let's celebrate the people that set up for that. Um, I think we had a little over like 100 people or something like that show up, so that's pretty pretty awesome. And, and so really what I'm saying is that we're thankful for a church family who takes eating so seriously around here. Um, But, you know, this is sort of a unique weekend for us as we look at the world because the world kind of thinks this corporate shift out of Thanksgiving headed into the Christmas season. Uh, And I just wonder this morning, how many of you have already started or or have put up your Christmas decorations or maybe your tree? Uh, A lot of us, for sure. And so that winter wonderland music has has started. and, and, And all of the music for me is cool for a while, but they say that there are four types of headaches. Uh, stress, migraines, hypertension, and Christmas music that goes from November all the way to January, right? Um, and look, I'm not a Grinch, okay? I'm down. I'm down with some Christmas. I like Christmas, but after like the 59th replaying of "Carol of the Bells," man, it, 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 it feels like the Caleb Pledge drive to me, okay? Right? And, and it's like uh, it's like it goes from the "Carol of the Bells" to you know. Carol something else and 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 so like some of you 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 just um you you start your Christmas countdown way too early okay you start it in July and I just want you to know if that's you that's a real problem this morning and um we're gonna bring that before the Lord Jesus today as we jump back into Jonah uh Jonah chapter three that's where we're heading together this morning as a as a church have you been enjoying the book of Jonah so far Yeah, lots of really cool stuff um, in Jonah that God's teaching us through his word, and and so if you haven't been with us, I'm going to bring you up to speed a little bit on where we've been recently. So a few weeks back, we looked at the regurgitation of Jonah in uh, Jonah 2.10 as he was spit back up, vomited uh, from the fish back onto the shore, Um, and then... Uh, Pastor Cody, along with his wife Molly's awesome illustrations, uh, showed us the recommissioning and the revelation of God through Jonah in Jonah uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And so, this is where Jonah came in, and he had to to bring some bad news to the city of Nineveh to the king there. And it's never fun when you have to deliver bad news, you know. And so, he he pulls out his cell phone and sends the king that text Hey, we need to talk, you know. I don't know if you ever got that text, but it's not a good text. And so, he's got to bring this bad news that in, in Forty days, right? He gives this uh, five-word in Hebrew, eight-word in English sermon. It says, "In forty days, Nineveh's getting smashed." Says God. That's the message he takes to to Nineveh. And then finally, last week, Pastor Isaac took us through uh, Nineveh's response back to what God had said uh, to them, and we watched an entire city repent. In Jonah chapter three, verses five through. Nine together, so it was regurgitation, recommission, revelation, response, and repentance. It's a lot of ours, and I worked really hard, hard on that, and that's for you, so you're welcome. Um, but today, where we're sitting down in week number nine of Jonah, is what we're going to do is we're going to look at, now at God's response back, to, back from Nineveh's response, where he is gracious again. And, and it's only one verse, say one. It's only one verse that we're going to work through together today as a church. But, but don't, don't be fooled because this verse is packed. It's like, it's like dynamite. It's a, it's a redwood seed. This is the one-tip challenge. Like this thing is full of some heavy, powerful theological weight to it. And so what I'm saying is don't underestimate this. Don't underestimate it even though it's one verse. We've got a lot to, to work through this morning, but my hope for us is that as we as we really are, we're going to revisit this verse a few different times. My hope for us is that you know it doesn't become like the Caleb pledge drive to us, but that as we as we look in this scripture, it might pro- provide us with a fresh perspective on the nature of our God. And so, if you have your Bible, go with me to Jonah chapter three. We'll read verse ten together, and then we'll have some conversation about this. Do you love Jesus, rest church? Are you ready to study His Word this morning? Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 only. When God saw what they did, talking about Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so we'll pray together and, and get rolling right into this. Jesus, we, uh, we love you and we thank you for letting us come together as your church this morning. Lord, that it's a privilege to do that, and not a right, and so we don't take that lightly. And and Heavenly Father, I just pray for some reformation of our our hearts and our minds this morning as we approach your your text. And and just a few weeks back, just as Jonah just said what you said, and, and then left the results up to you. That's sort of my game plan today because I know, I know that I know that response and repentance only flows from you, God, the Holy Spirit. But I, I do pray that you would help me to articulate and communicate who you are to your church clearly today and, and lord I, I pray for some some fire um, god not to not to create a heated argument but to just shed some light on what you've already said about about who you are and so holy spirit come and teach us this this morning and we just give this moment to you and want to respect your word god we love you and in jesus good name Amen. Some of them affirmed it this morning. Cody, the Titans are seven and three, right? Cowboys are eight and three. Um, God has heard our prayer from Sheol, just like Jonah. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, So have you ever been given... Uh, the wrong information before? Have you ever been given some misinformation, some misleading information? And as you receive that information, it totally changed the tra- trajectory or mindset that you had on, on something in particular, like you you digested this. And, and, and as I say that, you may be going, well, of course, Pastor, I have, you know, I have Facebook, and, and on Facebook, fake news is coming on there, as dirt is in the garden, right? And, and so, when it comes to us approaching the, the, the collection of 66 books, that is one book called the Bible, there's some fake news and there's some, some false perceptions that have floated around whenever it comes to us considering the nature of our God. And this is applicable to our text today, so I want to address this First, Because the typical story, the typical misinformation narrative, um, it sounds something like this. Whenever you read the, the, the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament seems mean. And then people will say, but when you read the New Testament, the God of the New Testament, he seems a lot nicer. And, and that's how it's mistakenly portrayed sometimes, that the God of, of the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, that he's a God of wrath only. And I did this um, AI generator online. You maybe you're familiar with these, um, but I just typed in some some words, God of the Old Testament, wrath, and this is what came up. Uh, you can pull that picture up if it'll come up. Um, and and so this is kind of the maybe maybe kind of the picture that we we think of when we think about the God of the the Old Testament, and, and it's pointed usually toward things like the flood, where, where God came in and one fell swoop and just, you know, wiped out human, humanity, or, or people will point to Sodom and Gomorrah, or they'll point to the plagues that got sent into to Egypt, and, 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 and they'll say, you know, God seems to just bring the hammer down for the smallest kind of infractions or violation against his law, and, and it seems harsh, and it seems judgmental, and it seems really cruel, and so it's like, hey, you know, you, you better watch out for this fury-filled God, you know, it's obey or pay. But then the misinformation continues as you get and read the New Testament. Um, pull up that picture, this AI picture of homeboy Jesus for me. Um, and so the misinformation in the New Testament says, well, well, God, he's in the New Testament, he's just a God of love only. And so... The picture is that this mercy-filled God isn't, isn't really too concerned with the truth, but he's more concerned that we kind of just, you know, get together and, and hug it out. This is, this is a God that, you know, he overlooks sin. And people will point to the stories of, you know, Jesus when he, the children are sitting in his lap or, or they'll look at moments with Jesus' followers whenever Jesus' followers were supposed to spread peace and, and not hate. And it's misguidedly interpreted as this, you know, campfire kind of Christ who always avoids conflict and demands everyone get along and and he may or may not be, you know, sponsored by like herbal essences or something because he always has really nice hair in those pictures, those paintings that you see of him, you know? And so the story, what I'm getting at, the story between these two, this misinformation portrays is that basically it's saying, hey, we we exist for the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament exists for us. And look, I'm sure that you could dismantle this, I could dismantle, we could dismantle this a million different ways through the scriptures, but I want to just set three really basic observations in front of you really quickly this morning so that we all get on the same baseline with this as we work toward Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Is that okay? Is that cool? Okay, thanks, Ted. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the first, that's an inside joke, if you're not familiar, when we say the name Ted, Ted. everyone yells back Ted, so there's that. Um, the first, the first problem with us in this question, okay? The first problem with us in this question that leads into this lane of thinking is that we start at the wrong spot. And the question we usually ask is this, why did God Why did God punish people, why did he punish sinners so severely and so swiftly in the Old Testament? And really, that's the wrong starting point. That's the wrong question to begin with, because what we should be asking is, why didn't God punish people, sinners, more swiftly and more severely in the Old Testament? In Psalm 139, verse 19, David, David has this, this cry out to God. He says, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. Um, the whole book of Habakkuk is centered around this question, around this cry for God to bring uh, justice to this planet. What we don't see in the Old Testament, okay, if you've been told this, what we don't see is we don't see a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass, but what we do see is we see a gracious God who extends mercy time and time and time again. Yet sometimes what we see also, what we see sometimes is that when God's mercies are disregarded, when people disregard his mercy, he does respond with justice. Piper on this says, God loves to show mercy, but his anger it must be released by a stiff safety lock, but his mercy has a hair trigger the The, the Old Testament picture of god church is that the heart of God is moving toward mercy, whereas the holiness of God demands justice and in fact, with this second observation on on Old Testament mercy, and you could even call this maybe one a if you if you wanted to, I'm going to get your help. Can, can you just think quickly and or name an Old Testament book that clearly expresses the, the, the mercies of God? Jonah, right, Jonah, right? We've been in Jonah, that's where, we, that's where we've been at. And, and, and just let rethink this through me just, just for a second. When you look back into chapter 1, of Jonah we see some pagan sailors show up right and they're rowing against the will of God and they're they're trying to help Jonah accomplish leaving uh, headed to Charshish and then the storm hits them and, and and Jonah tells the sailors he says hey this is the God Yahweh my God who's chasing after me if You throw me over all is going to be good and so the, the 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 sailors are in awe of God the storm stops and what they do is they repent in this moment it's, a, it's a, a, a God of mercy who offers it to these pagan sailors. Then in Jonah chapter 2, we see um, the, the reluctant prophet Jonah. Um, he, he, he goes by the grace of God, um, and, and he gets rescued from his drowning by a fish that God has sovereignly sent in the water to save him. It's a God of mercy. Then in chapter 3, churches, we just think for the past couple of weeks. In chapter 3, have we seen any expressions of God's mercies in chapter Three of Jonah, yeah, I mean, most, most definitely Jonah, he gets a second chance, right? God doesn't give up on him. God doesn't throw in the towel on Jonah, but he sends him uh, again to preach the word. And what happens as a result of that is this entire pagan nation of Nineveh repents of their sin. And we're going to see today that God relents in his wrath. And so the whole book of Jonah, the, the, the whole picture of Jonah Is the same storyline of the heart of God moving to mercy, but the the holiness of God demanding justice. And this is a final, really quick, last observation of of when it comes to the, the New Testament side of things. Because for us to render that in the New Testament, our God is only a God who speaks love without truth or only is full of mercy without justice, that is wrong. And in fact, I would argue that the most severe expression of God's wrath comes in the New Testament. And what is that, church? The cross. Pull that AI-generated picture up. It's the cross of Christ where we see the, the severity of God's wrath. It's not drizzled out on Jesus, but it's emptied on Jesus at the cross. And so, if someone says the New Testament God is a God of peace and only and the Old Testament God is a, a God of wrath only, what this is at a minimum, and it's a shallow reading of the scriptures, but also what it does is it, it devastatingly separates our, our, our God in, into two when He, in fact, is one God in, in three persons. And from this, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, across the Bible, from the beginning to the end, His character, He never changes. Have you built a fire recently, maybe with the cold weather, like outside, maybe like a campfire? Have any of you built a fire? Several of you have. Okay, so if you've built a fire recently, you should understand this concept way better than anyone else in here as you're, as you're toasting your marshmallows rock. Um, because if you're outside at a campfire, right, and the wind is blowing everywhere, all around your fire, you understand Just by standing on one side of the fire where the wind's blowing into, you're going to get burned if you stand on that side, right? But what happens is if you go on the other side of the fire, you're going to feel a different thing. You're going to feel some warmth. You're going to feel some heat from it. And the only difference there is your relationship to the flame. And the same thing is true of our God. It all just depends on where you stand in relationship to him, in both covenants, both testaments reflect this truth, but in their own distinct writing styles. He can reveal to you his warmth or he can reveal to you his wrath, but it 's all according to how you 've responded to his nature and this is consistent it 's consistent in the Bible, the heart of God, it moves toward mercy, but the, the holiness of God, it demands justice, and so it 's a threat by Condition So please, 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 please hang on to this as we walk toward our text, as we walk through Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, because as we do, what it's going to do is going to raise two really important theological questions that we're going to have to answer and deal with today. So turning an attention to the text, the big emphasis from Jonah chapter 3, as you read the whole entirety of it, the big emphasis really is on the city of Nineveh. Say Nineveh. And if you'll remember back from last week, the king, as we've said already, that he sent uh, Jonah this, uh, Jonah sent the king this message from God saying, hey, in 40 days, it's going down for real. You're going to get smashed. This is from God. And so as a result of that, the king, he repents and and everyone's in uh, ashes and sackcloth. The whole community repents and they're fasting together. Their animals are fasting together. And it's a physical picture of of repentance not this is not unkind to baptism where it's an outward expression of what's going on internally for the people of Nineveh and that's how Nineveh responds and in verse 10 is how God responds to Nineveh's response and listen to this it says and God saw what they did and they turned from their evil way and so God sees this happen God knows their hearts right he's the one that created them he's the one that designed them for his own purposes, but he also sees this outward representation of what's going on inside of their hearts. Or to, to say what Cody said a few weeks ago, you can't, you can't walk hand in hand with Satan and Jesus, right? That, that makes no sense. We see a further picture of this in the New Testament with the Pharisees, right? As they are verbally saying certain things and confessing those, but the inside of their cup, of, in their heart, is, is full of mold. And Jesus says, hey, you've missed the whole point. Or to make this personal for me, um, last night, my, my three-year-old Jordan, he was in, in the, one of the recliners, and he had, he had the recliner going out into a reclined position, and um, he was about to squash our new uh, puppy, uh, Ozzy, and I was like, Jordan, stop, and and he said to me, he said, sorry, and then, literally, a few seconds later, he continued to put the recliner out, and I was like, bro, you're not sorry, you keep doing the same thing that you were doing that I told you to stop, Right? And so he made a verbal, uh, re, he was verbally repentant, but inwardly he, he, he wasn't, right? That's all three-year-olds for you, but uh, I digress. So God, he, he sees Nineveh here, and I love this detail that God sees this. God sees them maybe really when nobody else sees them, certainly when Jonah is overlooking them. And, and maybe this is a reminder for someone here this morning that, hey, God sees you. Your God, he values you, he knows your hearts, he sees your struggles and in fact when you turn from your sin and walk in repentance, he sees that too. And so what this seeing thing is really about churches, is a picture of redemption. It's the beginning of the picture of redemption and so I'll just plug in here that there's, there's nothing that you could ever do that your God couldn't redeem. There's nothing that you could do. And so don't miss that just this, in this seeing of God, that this is a signpost toward Jesus in the New Testament as he brings this message of hope, not just for a few people, but for all people who would come to him, that they could find redemption. This is, this is God, God's seeing, that's God's heart moving in mercy. And so to go on, the Ninevites repent. And as Pastor Isaac said last week, they go, who knows, right? Who knows? Maybe, maybe God will, will see us and not destroy us. And, and in fact, God does see them and he, and he sees their, their deeds and he sees their hearts and says God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. And, and here's how God responds uh, back to Nineveh's response of repentance. This is where the rest of the message is centered at today. Part B of verse 10, God relented, Of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, so how so? How does God respond in in response to Nineveh's response of of repentance? The text says, "Then God relented." The uh, the the HCSB, the NASB, the ESV—they all use the same English translation here. God relented. Uh, The AMP says that he relented, showing compassion. Um, Then there's the KJV and a couple others that translate this as God repented. And so does God repent or does God relent? Because one letter really does make a big difference for us here. And and this is my interpretation. This is my opinion, and you're welcome to have your own too. Um, But I think the word repent here would be a poor English uh, translation for us. It limps a little bit because God, God doesn't repent at, in the same nature that, that, that the Ninevites had repented earlier on. In fact, for us to suggest that our God needs to repent of, of anything is sort of nuts. It's kind of theologically crazy since repent by nature means to turn from one wicked course of action into a, a more righteous or a holy course of, uh, of action. And, and, and so repent would assume that God had sinned in some way. And if that's the case, then our God would need a Savior himself. So what do we do? Well, the Hebrew here, it gives us a better indication of the context because the Hebrew word is uh, Nahum. Say nahum. nahum. And it's translated as repent from the King James Version of the Bible. But what it means is it means to bring comfort. It means to ease the pain. Or in this context, it means to throttle back. And when we see Nineveh repent earlier on, it's different because it's a different Hebrew word that's used. It's it's the word shuv. Say shuv. And that, that repentance means to turn from that path of evil to the path of holiness or, or, or righteousness. And so God's relent and Nineveh's repent are, are two totally different words altogether. When God relents, it has absolutely nothing to do um, from turning the sin to righteousness, but he's going from one course of action into uh, another. So God doesn't repent, but God, he, he relents. And so... If that's the case, in what way does God relent? What does that even what does that even mean for God to relent? God's relent, it's not about right versus wrong here. That's not the picture. What this statement is conveying to you and to me is that God has removed the threat of judgment against Nineveh. God has removed his threat of judgment against Nineveh. Nineveh and again this is consistent with God's character throughout the scriptures that the heart of God is moving toward mercy God is is comforted he feels at ease that his people has have listened uh, to Jonah that they've turned from their sin and so as a result God has revoked the option of judgment that was coming their way and so What Relent does here is it raises two really big uh, theological questions we're going to wrestle with for the remainder of our time together today. And those two questions are this. Number one is, was Jonah a true or false prophet? And number two is, does God change his mind? Was Jonah a true or false prophet? Number two, does God change his mind? So we're going to wrestle with the easier one first. Number one, was Jonah a true or false prophet? And why do I even say that? Why do I say, well, was Jonah a true or false prophet? If you look backwards, earlier on, we read in Jonah chapter three, uh, verse four, right? Jonah said in 40 days, it's going down. And, and now we've read further into the book of Jonah and we look back on this prophecy that he, that he gave and, 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 we, and we go, well, did this prophecy actually come true? No, no, it did not. It didn't come true. And, and, and so for us, this isn't, for us today, this isn't a huge deal because we, we understand a little bit of God's mercy and justice together. But, but for Jonah, this is a real, real big problem And from Jonah's perspective. And, and, and I'll let Cody pack and unpack some more to this uh, if he chooses to or Johan, whoever's preaching next week, if they want to. But just to, just to point out, this is a big problem from Jonah's perspective because if you were to flip back in the scriptures into the Old Testament and you were to ask the question, okay, so what, what is the, uh, the, the test to know if a prophet is true or, or false? Well, you might go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and you would find this. Um, this says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word doesn't come true or to pass, that's a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be uh, afraid of him or, or why, why listen to him? And so when it comes, to the theme of the prophets in Old Testament is that when it comes to them, the job description isn't that you're right 99.9% of the time. Okay, it's an all or nothing. You can't go after the fact and say, well, what I actually meant was this. You can't say as a prophet of God, well, if you would have read my cliff notes, you would have seen that I meant this about this prophecy. That's not how it worked. You would be stoned. And so we need to, to handle this context with care so you and I aren't misinformed and led astray. For example, if you were to today get into a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, um, sometimes they will point back to this very verse um, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and they'll go, see, see, Jonah, he was a prophet of God, and, and he made a mistake. He made a mistake in the, in, in, in the scriptures. And when we've made some mistakes in our prophecies too, and like the, the misinterpretation of scripture or where they uh, misinterpreted the beginning of the millennial reign in 1872 or when they predicted the second coming of Christ in 1874 or when they said that all governments would be overthrown in 1914, the Gentile times were over in 1918. They said that the mountains and kingdoms would be disappearing in 1920. They said in 1925, it was supposed to be the resurrection of the patriarchs and countless others... Eventually, what the Jehovah's Witnesses did is they went back and looked at these, these false prophecies, and at first they said, "Well, you know what? All of this happened invisibly. No one could no see it." OK. Then later on in 1975, they issued a public apology to their members for their false prophecies. The problem we don't want to run into is what the Jehovah's Witnesses do is they completely misinterpret the context of Jonah 3:10 which is sort of their MO, by the way, but as we see in the storyline of Jonah throughout the course of the 40 days as he is is preaching and Jonah says destruction is coming, that five-word sermon is a summary statement of his preaching. It's not the totality of it. And and we know this at a bare minimum just based on Nineveh's response, right? Nineveh, they they knew which sin they were being judged for. Nineveh knew which God was calling out to them, Yahweh. Nineveh knew how to repent. They were in ashes and sackcloth. And they were fasting. Now how would a pagan nation know any of this if, if, if Jonah hadn't revealed it to him in, in his preaching? What Jonah's done in the course of the 40 days leading to the day of judgment. He's been preaching reluctantly. We know that too. But he's been preaching the gospel to the people. And what we see in Jonah 3, 4 is the exact same thing we see happen throughout the course of the Old Testament and New Testament. It's God threatening by condition, the heart of God moving toward mercy, but God's holiness demanding justice. And and I really like Jeremiah 18 because I think it paints this picture really clearly for us this morning. So listen to this, listen to this. This is Jeremiah 18, um, threatening by, by, by conditioning. And this is what it says. God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I'm going to pluck it up, break it down, and destroy it, if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do, it, to, it, to, do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom, I will build and plant it. If it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do with it, to do to it. See, a student of the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially when it comes to prophecy, you understand the unstated statements by the stated statements that are already said. And so what God doesn't have to do every time is lay out what he laid out for us in Jeremiah uh, chapter 18 there. God's mercy is always mingled with, with God's justice because by nature that's who he is. And so God is telling Nineveh, he's like, hey, look, if you, if you continue going down this road, here's what's going to happen. But if you turn and repent, here's the option that's on the table for you. And so this wasn't as much prophetic judgment as it was a prophetic warning from Jonah. So was Jonah a false prophet? No, not at all, not at all. Maybe he would have thought differently on this, and we'll see that next week, but, but he wasn't a false prophet. And then on to the secondary, maybe slightly more difficult issue brought up from this text, theological question number two. Does God ever change his mind? Does God ever change his mind? Okay, so let's, uh, let's run. We're running from one baseline, right? We're running from one all the way to the other baseline. Um, same game, same court, same God, but we need to establish another baseline. This morning, whenever you and I begin to contemplate God, whenever we begin to think about God, I think a really good baseline for us to start at is to confess our inadequacies, to confess our weaknesses. Because just, 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 just think about it through this lens with me. If you and I, if we are unable to fully grasp, to fully understand earthly things like math, who's terrible at math in here? You're a witness to what I'm saying this morning, okay? Okay. If we can't understand math or we can't fully understand language or history or, or, or science, if it's impossible for us to understand those things, how much more impossible is it for us to understand the creator of everything, the one who made all things, who breathed life into all things and all things came into existence be, by his design, that, that's, that's beyond us. So whenever you and me, whenever, we, whenever you read the scripture, okay, and you're digging through and you find, you find something new about God, do you know that that's not something new about God? That's something new to you about God. But what it is, it's got the Holy Spirit working with you in that moment, revealing more, more of himself to you. So the baseline is this, we're, we're finite, God is, is infinite, and he by nature does not change. Now, as far as I know on this, the, the traditional Christian view, um, Catholic, classical Protestant, Orthodox, holds that God is both immutable and impassable. He is immutable and impassable. Immutable meaning that God doesn't change in any way, and therefore he's perfect. And then impassable meaning that God doesn't experience uh, emotional change in, in any way, nor does God suffer, because God, by nature, he's metaphysical, right? He's above physics. He is transcendent. And so in light of that, in light of this truth, it would be impossible for our God to repent or to change his mind. Now, now before before maybe you, if you know anything about this, before you jump the gun on me here, the impassibility, the impassibility of God, it really is intrinsic to who our God is. It's the very nature of His being. And and what impassibility doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that God is apathetic toward creation. But what it shows us is that God is perfect and infinite uh, to an infinite amount. Do you hear me on that? God is perfect in every way to an infinite amount. Or in other words, God, he comes, he comes with this guarantee. Like, like when you think about God's love, God can't love you anymore because he is the full measure of love. In fact, he doesn't just possess love, but he is love and love flows from him. That, that's the nature of, of who our God is. And so he can't get any better because he's already the best, Amen. And so here's the question with us. So how do, how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile God changing his mind? Because there, when you read the Bible, there are several passages that seem to indicate that, that God has a, a switch decision, a change of mind, and, or emotion and passion. And, and here's a few. We'll just, I'm going to run through them quickly. If you want to write them down, you better get your marker ready. But just run through them really quickly. Here's a few. Genesis 6.6, 6, the Lord regretted he made man and grieved him. Exodus 4, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Psalm 2, uh, he who sits in heaven laughs. Uh, Judges 2, the Lord was moved to pity. Joel 2, uh, the Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and repents of evil. Then, of course, today's text, Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, God relented. And what this is, there's, there's a theological term for this, and it's called anthropopathism. Anthropopathism. And, and what that is, is it's just a fancy word or a fancy way of attributing non-physical human emotions and passions to God. And what this is, church, what this is, is a teaching device that's used to teach you and to teach me about the nature and ways of our incomprehensible and extraordinary God. So it describes God in terms of, of human emotion. And the sister to anthropopathism is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism um, in the scriptures is is when uh, physical human properties or animal properties are used to 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 describe or attribute it to our God. Here's a few of those just so you can see it. Deuteronomy four, for the Lord your God's a devouring fire. Isaiah 41, um, with my righteous right hand, number six, the Lord make his face shine upon you. Psalm 17, he's the apple of we're the apple of his eye. Keep us in the shadow of your wings. In Hosea thirteen it says he's like a lion, a leopard, um, and lurking and like a bear robbed of her cubs. James five says that the harvesters cry and it reaches the ears of the Lord of hosts. And I so I think naturally when we read verses like this, we, we just kinda ask, we go, does God does God have eyes? Does God does God have ears? You know, does does, does is God a fire? Does he have wings? And and and, and I mean sure. Literally, he manifests in some of these ways in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He shows up, Jesus comes down as a man, right? He certainly has a mouth and, and, and ears and a nose and, and, and can hear and that sort of thing. But there are other texts in the scriptures that, that show us these clues to God's form in regard to God. And what I need to show you this morning is that God, he is so fundamentally different than you and me. He is fundamentally different. Listen to this. Hosea eleven nine, 9. God says, I am God, I'm not man. John 4 God is spirit. This is a God that we serve, that no one can understand him. Listen to this. Exodus 33 it says, You can't see my face and live. He asked Job, maybe you're familiar with this story. He asked Job, he goes, hey, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or the cords of Orion? Do you lead forth the Maseroth? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinance of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? He's talking about about star clusters and and constellations and how the cosmos are a theater of of his own glory. In Isaiah 40, 28, he says, "Um, the Lord is the everlasting God, he's the creator, he doesn't faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable, see, if God is like us in in, in transitory emotion, okay, if God is like that, he could never save us, he could never save us, if God is subject to emotional change, how could we ever know that he would stay true to his word? How could we know that he would ever stay, stay true to his gospel promises that, he, that he'd give to us if, if they, 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 they could change as quickly as his mood swings could? As he walks down the, the corridor of the hallway of your house with his back turned to you, we heard a Comedian a few weeks ago said that. Said you and your wife are in an argument in your 1,200 square foot house. And what do you do when you're on opposite ends of the house? And you walk down that one corridor in your 1,200 square foot house. You walk with your back turned. You know your mouth closed because you're still trying to avoid them. Is that how our God is toward us? No, absolutely not. And it's the omnis of God that reiterate and help teach us his nature. Omni is just a Latin word that means all. Say All. And from God's, God is omnipresent, so that means he's everywhere all of the time. He's omnipresent, so he created time, so he exists outside of time. Second Peter 3 yeah, says that one day to the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. Psalm 139 says he sees you before you're born. Second um, Corinthians 5 says he sees you at your death, so God sees your, 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 your uh, birth when you're born and your death all in an instance. He's omniscient, which means that he's all-knowing. All knowledge flows from our God. He's omnipowerful or omnipotent. He's omnipotent. Psalm 147, he's abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, he said, he reminds us of God's omnipotence. Listen to this quote. He says, there's not a single molecule running loose in the universe outside of the control and domain of our God. It's the omnis of God that help reveal to us, that help show us that his decrees and his promises and his self is eternal and faithful, that he can be trusted and that he never changes. He never changes. And God himself reiterates this. Don't take my word for it. Listen to this. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. 1 Samuel 15 says, the glory of the Israel uh, won't lie or repent for he's not a man that he should repent. Malachi 3, 6, I the Lord don't change. James 1, 17, the father of light's in him. There's no variation of shadow or uh, due to change. So, so how, do we, how do we talk, man? How do we even talk about this transcendent, incomprehensible God in a way that doesn't violate his transcendence? How do we, how do we understand him? Well, my belief here, and I think it's important that I, that I put that in there, my belief here is that God, what he's done for us in his mercy, is that he's lowered himself in language, or he's condescended language, in order that human beings like me and you can understand him. And he does this by expressing truths about himself analogously. The passages that we've read thus far in, today in this framework, they, they, they say to me at least that God doesn't and cannot change. And I take that as a literal interpretation. But then there are others that state that the opposite to that, you know. And, and for me, I interpret these as figuratively or metaphorically or anthropo, anthropopathically. And so what is this, church? What is this? That was perfect timing. This is baby talk. Perfect timing. Thank you, Lord. That was perfect timing. This is how I see this. I see this as baby talk from Lord. From, you know what baby talk is, right? It's like, have you ever tried to, to uh, unravel or unwrap a really weighty thought or something in the scripture to your kids or, or, or to someone just younger to you in the faith? What do you do in those moments? Like, you don't, you don't sit here and try to roll out the extents of your knowledge over top of them, right? No, no, no. What you do is you, you break it down. You, you, you communicate it simply so that they can understand it in, in, in a language and, and comprehend it. It's, it's baby talk, what a, what a grace of, of God for him to, to give us this. And, and what happens in those moments is as you, as you get down to your children and talk to them in this level, it doesn't make you weaker. Mm-mm. It shows your compassion as you come down to their level. Let me give you an example of this. Um, if I were to make these two statements analogously, and I said, okay, God the Father loves you. And I also said, and, and from that, Dad Loves Jax and Jordy, that's my two kids. If I said, God the Father loves you, and I said, uh, and, and Dad loves Jax and, and, and Jordy, what we would understand in, in this is that when the Bible communicates, you can leave that up for a second, Julie, when the Bible communicates that, our, that God is a father to us, it's not communicating that He's exactly like an earthly father. But it's also not communicating that he's so unlike an earthly father that the statement doesn't mean anything. Because in one sense, God is similar to, to a father, right? He's a protector. He's a, a provider. He, he loves us. He's a friend. He's a confidant. But when the Bible does this for us, this baby talk, when it breaks it down to our, our, our own language on a level we can understand, what we think of when we hear God as father, the first thing kids think of in their mind is they relate it back to their earthly fathers, right? They see this picture of God through that lens, probably, probably first when they hear that God is a father too, and and I think the same is true of every other adjective that comes up about God—that He's King, that He's Shepherd, that He's um, good, that He's loving, that He's wrathful, that He's a Potter. And and the only reason, the only reason, church, that we can begin to make sense of these attributes is because what they do is they express some type of commonality between us and God. The, word God used, the words that God uses in the scripture, it's already been set up from the beginning of creation for this purpose. And when you do this, it doesn't make you weaker. It makes you knowable. Yet, what happens is that when you and I, you can leave that up for me more time, of my father example. What happens is you and I, as we get to know God more, we understand we have to overhaul some of the terms that we've learned. Because what this is not saying, it's not saying that God is a bigger version of your dad. No, no, no. It's saying that he is the perfection of your earthly father. He's the father to the fullest. In fact, the the, the word father and son, um, last thing on this, it's not related to uh, the the physical generation of a dad and son that exists here, but the, the truth of the term points back to the Godhead and the Trinity with the father and with this son, and they are so closely connected and inseparable in perfection. And so we describe this transcendent God by what we know, by material objects and creation to describe an immaterial Person, and there's a lot more I'd like to talk about. About you know when it comes to the nature of God, but we don't have time this morning. It's uh, Just fascinating thing to do, but to to pull this back to the meat and potatoes of Jonah three ten. Wrapping this up, um, how do we? Okay, in light of all that we've looked through, God's finite or God's infinite? We're finite. He moves in mercy, but he demands justice. With considering those things. Let's look at God's response again to Nineveh, part B of verse 10. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So highlight a disaster there because I think we need to weigh in first on the disaster that was averted. We need to to understand the the disaster that was headed toward Nineveh so we can fully fully grasp what what it's saying here and, and appreciate God's relenting See, from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, God, he demonstrates his his righteousness and his justice not by winking at sin, but by emptying divine wrath out on those who are guilty of sin. And when we talk about the wrath of God, what we assume is that this is something that will happen as God disciplines those who sin. Because the price of sin all throughout the scripture, the price of sin is always wrath, right? Romans 6, the, the cost of sin is always, always death. See, if God had just stepped out and forgiven you of your sin, if he just acquitted you of all the debt that you owe against him, he wouldn't be just. And, and like, that sounds like good on our end to a degree, but what it would do is it would leave you desperately disappointed because I know this about you. I don't know anything else about you, but I know this. I know you love justice. I know that you demand some justice, man, right? That car comes out and it cuts you off in the road, or maybe they're driving faster than you and in your mind you think, man, I hope that fool gets a ticket. Maybe you don't think that. Maybe you're more spiritual than me, but that's what I think, Right, or like maybe like you're at work and your coworker got a twenty-five dollar gift card, grocery card to Kroger, and, and you somehow didn't get that. And so what do you do? Well, you go to your boss and you say, "Hey, this isn't fair." Or maybe you don't do. Maybe you passive aggressively behind the scenes. Maybe you give that person the silent treatment, or maybe you talk about them. Like we all we 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 love some justice. We demand some justice until the justice is pointed back at us. And that's what God is doing here in Nineveh. He's saying, Nineveh, this is your sin. So this is, this is what God is, is, is relenting from. And the good news for Nineveh, the good news for us, that is this little phrase tucked in here, listen to this, God relented and he did not do it. Wow, I'll read it again. You didn't, you didn't it was, God relented and he did not do it. He brings this threatening with conditioning, the heart of God is moving in mercy, but the holiness of God, it demands justice. I love what John Piper says on this. Listen, he says, I measure God's love for me by the magnitude of the wrath that I deserved, and the wonder of God's mercy by putting Christ in my place. And church, this isn't just good news for Nineveh. This is good news for you, and it's good news for me this morning that our perfect God brought to justice to our sin through his son, Jesus, that the father bankrupted heaven for you. And on the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the debt that you'd owe. And he makes the payment, the perfect payment with his perfect life. And Jesus then bears the, the full wrath of God uh, without mercy so that you and I can bear God's mercy, mercy without his wrath. And so what we need is we need God to save us from God. You and I need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we, we've got to talk about God's wrath and justice because it's a real thing. And it, it's only then that our eyes can be opened up to the wonders of his mercy, man. I mean, that's John three sixteen, 16, right? It says, for God so loved a sin-stained world that he sent his only son, his mercy, to die That satisfied the wrath and justice of God. That whoever might believe in him, that's grace, by grace, wouldn't perish. That's an eternal death in in God's wrath. But would find eternal life in him. That's the cross. That the heart of God moves toward mercy. But it's the justice of God that demands, or the holiness of God that demands justice.